Morning, Castleton Church family. It is good, good news that the Lord is our salvation. I'm so glad that we're able to worship together this morning and uh, excited for us to uh, have our final installment in our series through First Kings this morning in First Kings chapter 11. You may be wondering, what's on the docket after this? What's our preaching calendar going to look like? Well, next Sunday, uh, we'll have a virtual service, and I'll be preaching from Psalm 136, a, a Thanksgiving message. And then following that, we'll have a series from the book of Isaiah. We'll be looking at chapter 11 called The King Has Come. As we prepare our hearts for Christmas, we want to look with eyes of faith at the coming Messiah, King Jesus, in anticipating his, even his second coming. Uh, I hope your heart will be warmed by it as we celebrate the birth of our Savior. Well, this morning our text is uh, 1 Kings chapter 11, as it was already read. And again, this is a the sobering ending to what I hope has been an encouraging series. As we prepare our hearts for it, why don't we ask the Lord's help with a brief word of prayer. Oh, King Jesus, would you even now help our hearts to be wholly yours? Would you give us, give us victory over the many sins that would turn our hearts away from you? And would you grant us great joy to know that you are the obedient king that we so desperately need. Oh Jesus, even this morning, would you make us into, make us into citizens of your kingdom that long for your return. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. When I was a teenager, Long before that odd character known as the Tiger King was on the scene, there was another famous man with the name of Tiger. He was named Tiger Woods. He, there was a buzz about him in the sporting world. I remember when he was Rookie of the Year. I really wasn't one to watch much golf, but even I got, got on the hype train. I, I found myself watching golfing events just to watch this guy swing a golf club. And it wasn't hard to see why people were so excited about him. He was everything you would hope for in a golfing sports star. He had a smooth, powerful swing. The, the ball would go far and true down the fairway. He had a wholesome image. He graced the cover of modeling magazines. Every endorsement you could imagine was his. He was very quickly on the top of the sporting world. He had endorsements that would net him over $100 million per year because, after all, everyone loves a winner, and there was lots of winning going on. He won 14 majors over 10 years. It, it looked like this guy was just going to keep steamrolling the golfing world. But the great heights that Tiger Woods uh, rose to only served to make his fall all the more ruinous. In 2009, an Inquirer uh, story broke. It turned out that Tiger Woods had been a serial adulterer. His image took a battering, even as the SUV he was driving and a bit of poetic justice was dinged up by his enraged wife with, yes, a golf club. And as fast as he rose, it seemed as if Tiger Woods faded from the sporting world. 
It was a cautionary tale of how quickly even great heights of success can result in a great fall, even for the powerful and famous. Well, this morning we turn our attention to arguably one of the most famous examples of such a fall, the example of King Solomon. We've been exploring the golden age of Israel under Solomon's reign. He rose to the throne of Israel and with his rise came wealth and wisdom that brought peace and prosperity that that no kingdom of the earth had uh, ever rivaled. And yet, as we'll see, a story that started so sweetly will end on a very bitter note indeed. The heart of the king will turn And as a result, his kingdom will be torn. As we examine this cautionary tale, we'll we'll learn a lesson for ourselves. We'll learn that gifting is no substitute for faithfulness. That gifting is no substitute for faithfulness to our God. We'll look through this passage in three sections. In verses 1 through 8, we'll see... The heart that turns. The heart that turns. Then in 9 through 11, we'll see the kingdom that is torn. The kingdom that is torn. And then in verses 12 through 13, we'll see the God that is true. The God that is true. Let's begin in verses 1 through 8. The heart that turns. The very beginning of the verse, in verse 1, tips us off that the narrative has shifted dramatically. Our last glimpse of the golden age is behind us and something far darker is here. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Commentator Dale Ralph, uh, uh, Paul House says that this should be interpreted like a slap in the face to anyone that is faithful. What in the world is King Solomon doing? This is not the way a godly king is supposed to act. Well, it turns out that this is just the tip of the ungodly iceberg of sin. It turns out that the king that had been described as loving God with all his heart is now clinging to many foreign wives in love. The, the multiplication of the magnitude of his sin is seen in the number of wives. 700 wives, 300 concubines, 1,000 in total. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis puts it, That's 999 too many for those of you counting at home. Now, it would be a mistake to think that Solomon here is only committing a sin of lust. Back then, accruing many wives was a status symbol of sorts for kings. Having a large harem that everyone could see the magnitude and size of was a way of showing how great a king you were. So in that way, Solomon just had to have the most wives of all. It also, there was political capital to be gained through these sorts of marriages. Remember, Solomon, early on in his story, we were told he married Pharaoh's daughter. The thought back then was if you married, uh, made bonds through marriage to other nations that might at some point come into conflict with you, that, that maybe just maybe the, the bonds of blood would keep the peace between you and these rival nations. Well, Solomon, for those reasons, but certainly also for the lusts of the flesh, 
accrues for himself many, many wives. Now, as bad as that is, though, it's not even the worst of it. No, at the heart of the matter is the heart failure of the king. Verse 4 makes that clear. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Six times in this passage, heart is, used, is brought up. The, the repetition is intended to draw the emphasis to this great failing of this great king. He has a divided heart that will divide his kingdom. Solomon, through the love that he had for these foreign wives, has his heart turn astray. Now, if Solomon had been paying attention this should have come of no surprise to him at all. God had warned the Israelites that this is exactly what would happen when they entered into foreign marriages. All the way back in Deuteronomy 7, God tipped his hand of exactly what would happen if they did this and what he would do as a result. Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4. You shall not intermarry with them, that is the peoples of the land, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. God has made very clear <clears throat> the trap that Solomon walks right into. And the results will prove God absolutely right and true in his warning. <clears throat> what makes all of this worse is that as Solomon enters into these marriages, his heart is turned to worship other gods. He, maybe at first out of an accommodation, he, he creates worship spaces for the gods of his, of, of his wives. He would get a listing of the abominations that they were. What's even worse, though, is the place he chooses, we're told it's on a, a hill outside the city. Phil Riken points out that this would almost certainly be the Mount of Olives. And that means all of this pagan worship is happening in eyeshot of the temple of the true God of Israel. Imagine being a faithful Israelite going to the temple to bring your sacrifices in worship to the true God and looking down and watching this false worship occurring. Even worse, we find that not only does Solomon facilitate this worship, he actually participated in it. Look in verses 5 and 6. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. The man that had built and dedicated the temple and led God's people in worship to God now in the, eyes, in the eyesight of anyone who has eyes to see is leading them into pagan worship. Oh, Solomon, how you have gone astray. 
What will be the result of this heart failure of Israel's king? Well, that's what we see in verses 9 through 11. The result is the kingdom that is torn. The kingdom that is torn. God speaks again with Solomon. And this conversation is not a pleasant one. In verse 9, we're told the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Anyone that has been paying attention to Israel's God will not be surprised at what comes next. Sometimes the Bible describes God as jealous. People struggle with that because we think of human jealousy, that controlling prideful sort of vice of our hearts that uh, oftentimes leads us to, uh, into very destructive sorts of, uh, of uh, very destructive sorts of actions in our relationships. But when God spe- we speak of God's jealousy, it's a very different thing. Now, it's much closer to the sort of righteous indignation that a spouse rightfully feels when they find out that their husband or their wife has been unfaithful. Remember, God has married himself to Israel. There has been a covenant with vows that have been made between them. And the condition for that covenant is faithfulness. They must be true to their God because he is their spouse. God is angry with Solomon because Solomon has violated that covenant. He has given the sort of worship and adoration to other gods that only God himself deserves. God made this clear in the covenant in Sinai he made with Israel. He made it clear when they renewed that covenant before they entered the promised land. If you remember back to chapter 9, God even made it clear to Solomon the last time he spoke with him, the need for him to remain faithful and true and the consequences if he does not. Well, what we see in these verses is that God is true to his word. Solomon has brought great ruin upon him and his kingdom. In verse 11, God speaks to Solomon and tells him what's going to happen. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Due to Solomon's sin, the kingdom will be divided. Phil Riken said it this way, one man's divided heart ended up dividing a whole kingdom. Because of Solomon's sin, his dynasty will not endure. Like all the other kings and kingdoms in this earth, it will fade into the dustbin of history. How will this happen? Well, the rest of the chapter shows us this broad sketch of it. We, we don't have time to go into all of it, but I'll just give you the outline. God raises up three adversaries to harass and ultimately tear the kingdom away from Solomon's sons. From the south, he raises up a guy called Hadad the Edomite. You see that in verses 13 through 22. He's a powerful man with vengeance on his mind, coming back to get Solomon for what David did to his nation and his family. 
In verses 23 through 25, we see an adversary raised up from the north. His name is Razon, the son of Eliad. He's a harassing marauder, chipping at Solomon bit by bit at the corners of his kingdom. And then, worst of all, in 26 through 40, is Jeroboam. He is the threat that rises up from inside Solomon's kingdom. A gifted, ambitious man on the rise that one day will wrest away ten tribes from Solomon's sons. The result of these adversaries being raised up is that the reign ahead for Israel will be one of ruin. It's as if the dark, ominous clouds that God had threatened are now dominating the horizon. The, divided, the kingdom will be divided. There will be ten tribes that will be taken by Jeroboam and those who follow after him. And two tribes that remain in the hands of Solomon's sons. The north will be called the kingdom of Israel, those ten northern tribes. And the south will be called the kingdom of Judah. Never again will the tribes be united. Never again will they attain the glory and prosperity under Solomon's reign. No, this will be a sad season. One filled with war, false worship, decline, and one day even deportation. The northern tribes will, after much disobedience to God, be carried away to Assyria in exile, never to return. And the southern tribes, even though they'll endure a little longer, they too will fall into unfaithfulness, and they too will be carried away to, long, uh, to, to far and lonely Babylon. It appears as if the future for God's people is a dark one indeed. And yet, in the midst of such a severe judgment, there is mercy still. And that's what we see in verses 12 through 13. The God that is true. The God that is true. Even in the midst of those dark, ominous clouds dominating the horizon, there can be seen glimmers of hope. Because after all, the God of Israel is a God full of grace and mercy. You can see his mercy even toward King Solomon in the way his judgment will be carried out. There's two ways you can see his mercy. The, the first is that Solomon will not have to see these dark days himself. Verse 12, Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. God tells Solomon that he will spare him the sadness, the shame of watching the kingdom torn out of his very hands. He'll wait for that judgment to come to pass until Solomon himself has passed from this earth. A small mercy, but a mercy nonetheless. But second, not only is God going to wait until Solomon sleeps for this, it turns out that God's judgment will not last forever. There will be a remnant for, for Solomon's sons. Verse 13, however, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, 
and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. There's a, a biblical pattern, especially prominent in your, New Te- uh, your Old Testament, but also in the New, that in God's judgment, there's always a remnant that he saves for himself. Out of the large-scale disaster that God brings as a result of sin, he always preserves a faithful remnant, a, a faithful few that one day will be restored. He promises here that the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, will stay in the line of David. And beyond that, as the rest of the chapter makes clear, he will also one day restore the kingdom to a season of prosperity. When he's talking to Jeroboam, he reveals that this judgment will not last forever. In verse 39, he says, And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Not forever. You see, God, even as he is holy and righteous and will bring judgment on his people, he still will show them mercy. This is all fully in line with what God had said he would do from the very beginning. Long before Solomon was on the scene, God made a promise to his father, David. A promise that we are seeing play out in even the way God brings about this very severe form of discipline. In 2 Samuel 7, God tells David what will happen when one of his sons disobeys and turns his heart away. 2 Samuel 7, 14 through 15. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love I will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. As God told David, Solomon's great father before him, God is now doing just as his word predicted. He is disciplining his nation and his king with the rod of men. It will be a long and painful season of discipline. But it is not but discipline does not mean God has abandoned them. And one day his mercy will be seen again. And this brings us to the end of Solomon's reign. We're not told what happened after God spoke to Solomon in this way. We don't know whether he repented and regretted all he did and turned his heart back to God or or whether he doubled down on his sin and lived in even worse wickedness for the rest of his days. Uh, Some people like to speculate that he turned back and wrote the book of Ecclesiastes as a result? Maybe. I'd like to think so. But let's be frank. The, the text simply doesn't tell us. What it does tell us is that after God spoke to Solomon, shortly after, Solomon went the way of all the other kings of this earth. What we see in 41 through 43 is even the greatest kings of men one day must leave their kingdoms. Must, one day they must lay down their riches and become dust, for from dust they came. 
Solomon's reign was a remarkable one. Forty years mostly filled with wealth and wisdom, peace and prosperity. And yet as sweetly as the song began, it ends on a bitter note indeed. As will be the pattern with all of the kings that come after him. For all the good he did and all the mistakes he made, at the end of the day, he is just a man. And he was not made to live forever. What are we to take from the reign of such a notable and tragic king whose heart loved God so greatly and yet turned away in his final days? Let me suggest three lines of application for us as we come to the end of our series. The first is that we need to beware of the subtle and sudden nature of sin. Beware of the subtle and sudden nature of sin. When you look at the whole account of Solomon's life, even as his success was so notable at the beginning, there were the seeds of the sins that would one day, one day once they bloomed, bring about his ruin. You might remember that he married Pharaoh's daughter at the beginning of his reign. That that was questionable at the time, but later on we see it developed into that love for many foreign wives. We saw his political power plays that that got him to the throne. And and later in life, we see that he was not done being uh, bloodthirsty and lusting for power. His accrual of power was one of the vices that would be his undoing. Even his worship from the beginning, there was that that minor note. He loved the Lord, yet he worshiped at the high places, foreshadowing his great turn of heart to worship and build worship uh, spaces for these foreign gods. You see, for a time, it seemed like his, his success had insulated him from all of these notable and yet subtle sins. And yet one day, the consequences for his sin came upon him quickly. It's like the old cartoons, the Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote. You know, Wile E. Coyote's always chasing after the Roadrunner, and for a while it even looks like he can defy the laws of physics, running off of a cliff after the Roadrunner. That is until he realizes that his legs are no longer running over solid ground. He's running over thin air, and then he looks down, and suddenly the fall is sudden and quick. So it so often is with sin. Everything seems like it's fine. We think we have it under control until we don't. And great is the fall when it comes. Students, you're young, early on in your life. Maybe it feels like the Sins that you are dabbling in don't have great significance to them. Oh, I'll have time to break this bad habit later. Oh, if I try it once, it won't do any harm. Realize the sins that are in seed form in your heart now, one day they will sprout. And if you leave, leave it to another day to try and uproot those, plant, those uh, seeds of sin, your sorrow will only be magnified. Fight your sin now. 
Learn how to put your sin to death while you're young and you won't have regret when you've grown older. Maybe you're someone who has some standing in this world. Maybe you're the head of a a family as a parent. Maybe you have a role as a supervisor or a manager, people that report to you. There's a warning here of how sin can affect more than just you individually. Sin gets all over everything. It's like a jar of peanut butter that explodes all over a room. There's no, nothing that it won't ruin. Would you take the warning from Solomon? Think of all the misery that your sin could bring upon those that God has entrusted to you in some way. Your sin could ruin your reputation. But even worse, it could ruin your family. It could ruin your marriage. It could ruin the faith of others in your church. Brothers and sisters, when you count the cost of what sin could do to others, and even for their sake, would you fight your sin with even more sobriety? Or maybe you're here this morning and honestly you would say that your heart has in some way wandered. It has turned away from its first love of the Lord. Maybe you're even starting to feel the discomfort and pain from the consequences of your sin. The price you're paying to indulge each time keeps going up and up. Friend, would you realize that that discomfort, that increasing cost to your sin is meant, it's meant from God as a mercy to you, to turn you away from the direction you are wandering, to keep you from the eventual ruin that your sin will have if you continue to pursue it. Turn back while there's time. Repent. Come back to for your first love and find mercy and forgiveness before it costs you your very soul. He who thinks he stands, let him take heed, lest he fall. Solomon is a legendary a legendary story meant to warn us of how suddenly and how subtly sin can bring ruin into our lives. Second, be ready for the end of your own story. Be ready for the end of your own story. Even the greatest kings, even those with the largest piles of gold, with the most fame and fortune, one day come to the same fate as all the rest of us. One day, each of us will die. The only question is, will you be ready for that day? Will your death be a day that you look forward to as a doorway into a better time? into a better place, into the presence of a God that you know will welcome you into his courts? Or will your death be something that you look forward to with dread? The Bible tells us that it's appointed for man to live once and then face the judgment. None of us can escape this meeting that we are headed to with the King and Lord of us all. But friend, The good news is that you can go to that meeting with confidence and even joy. 
if you know the one who you will meet on that day. His name is Jesus Christ. And he's promised that if you put your trust in him, if you sincerely turn from your sin and trust him to save you from the penalty you deserve, if you trust that he can grant you eternal life, then then death no longer will be something you'll dread. Instead, death will be a doorway. A doorway into everlasting peace and prosperity in the presence of the God who made you. Jesus said that anyone who believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. And friend, if you put your trust in Jesus, you can have that hope. A hope that will be sure even on the day of your dying. Would you be ready for the end of your story? Make it a final note that's sweet, not bitter. Put your trust in Jesus. For all of us, I think that Solomon's life should give us should give us all the more motivation to entrust our heart to our faithful king. To entrust our heart to our faithful king. I, I, I like to think of what the faithful Israelites in far and lonely Babylon must have been thinking as they first heard this account written down for them. Their hearts must have longed, must have been filled with sorrow, thinking, if only he had been faithful, how things might have been different. Brothers and sisters, realize the regret that they felt for Solomon's misdeeds is one that we will never feel for our good King Jesus. We will never say of Jesus, if only he had been obedient. We will never say of Jesus, if only he had been faithful. Jesus is our king that has risen to reign, but his is a reign that will remain forever because he is a king that was fully obedient to his father. Obedient, yes, even to the point of giving up his very life to the death that he accepted on a cross. And brothers and sisters, that means we can entrust our hearts wholly to him. We can do so knowing that he will never disappoint us. There will never be a scandal, never be a hidden sin revealed about him. He will never lead us into ruin. That we can have a king over us that will bring us into peace and prosperity without end. And that means, as we close this series looking at a king whose heart failed, we can ask King Jesus to give us hearts that stay true to him. In a moment, we're going to sing a song, a song that is fitting for those who know King Jesus and who long to remain in a loving relationship with him as long as they live on this earth. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O oh, great God, 
of highest heaven. Glorify your name through me. Brothers and sisters, King Jesus is a good king, a king that is worthy to reign in your heart today and every day to come. He has risen to reign, and may his reign remain forevermore. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we worship you as our faithful king. Thank you for succeeding where Solomon and every king of men failed before him, before you. Lord Jesus, would you now grant us hearts that love you, that are true to you, would you sustain us by our, your grace? Keep us from the sins that would turn our hearts aside from you. Grant us the sort of faithfulness that won't find regret on the day of our dying. Oh Jesus, grant us a vision of your kingdom to come and the endless joy we will have under your wealth and wisdom in a world remade a world full of joy that will go on without end. Encourage our hearts now, we pray in your name. Amen.